Replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. They're a benefit, it's not my problem. We don't have to be mean, because remember, no matter where you go, there you are. Conan, what is best in life? Crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and they hear the lamentation of their women. Groovy. Can you hammer a six-inch spike through a board with your penis? Not right now. The girl's got to have her standards. It gives her a sense of control in a world full of chaos. Yeah, I'm a firm believer in the philosophy of a ruling class, especially since I rule. You have offended my family, and you have offended the Shaolin Temple. Welcome to another episode of The Cult of Classics, the podcast where you know the score. If you're not cop, you're little people. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Liam Kelly. Hey. How are you doing, Liam? I'm good. How about you? Awesome. And I am now I am joined by a uh-huh. street dweller, an urchin, <laughs> a uh, hobo, a leftover from another podcast um, that I thought I had put behind me. Blake Weatherly, how are you hey, doing, Blake? Hey, hey, it's good to be here, guys. Thank you for having me. I uh, want to give shout-outs to all my people. You know who you are. You don't get to do and, that here. Okay. No. <laughs> thank, you, thank, you for having, thank you for having me. You're either a benefit or a hazard. <laughs> and if you're a benefit, it's not my problem. <laughs> Straight up. And uh, joining me also, a person that I fucking hate. <laughs> no, it's good to have you, Blake. Blake's joined us today to talk about a very, very special movie in all of our hearts, Blade yeah. Runner. Yo. Yeah, uh, the film in 1982, undeniable, even even to Blake. It's one of the greatest um, moments of, uh, well, it's, a, it's the greatest examples of a cult classic film. Yeah, because the film did do poorly at the box office, and yet its reception critically and and um, by fans over the years has just been nothing but positive. Yeah, and, and you know, rewatching this too, I was astonished because I used to be in the camp that Blade Runner 2049 was better than Blade Runner. I was in that camp. I was yeah. strong in my mountain in that camp. Rewatching it, I was like, fuck, I don't know. I honestly don't know. Yeah. Like, they're both terrific. They're both amazing. But there's something about the first one, there's something about an atmosphere it has that is like, I, like it's, it's hard to describe. It's like, I'm in these cold, lonely streets mm-hmm. of this future city. These streets! <laughs> I'm in this cold. I'm in the cold, lonely streets of this future city. It's raining. Yeah. There are gangs of little people mm-hmm. pillaging, but because they're not cops. But I feel warm. <laughs> I feel warm and comfy in this place. I mean, the soundtrack bops. Does. Angeles. The the lighting is Jordan Cronenworth insane throughout. Yeah. And the 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 miniatures like I uh, I, I feel like Donald Trumbull. 2049 is a great movie and I won't besmirch it but it's 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 compounding on something that was wholly original and sorry Douglas Trumbull and incredibly well made and unique I agree and you know you th- you you're throwing money at, at something at in 2049 you're throwing money at an already great great thing and you're you're getting an, an amazing result but to me the original blade runner is the peak. And it's what what makes Blade Runner so astounding, and I was talking with Jay about this, was just that after Blade Runner and Mad Max, every post-apocalyptic sci-fi world is either Blade Runner or Mad Max. Yeah. yeah. Fer- seriously, every single one of them. It's like you're either making a cold, dark, dystopian future that is overrun by technology and bereft of humanity, or it's a post-apocalyptic desert wasteland where roving gangs of like rapists and madmen are chasing you. Yeah. So it's either Mad Max Fury Road or it's Blade Runner. Yeah. That's what you get. And and the film is just it 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 sets this standard Blade Runner by being unbelievably meticulous in its set design and its production value and being unwavering in its um, direction and being its direction and its its settings its lighting. And and being uh, acted thoroughly and immersively by its cast. So let's get right into it. <clears throat> the opening of this film uh, still gives me chills. Um, 
I, I, I still kind of a part of me believes that there is a better life waiting for me out in the colonies. <laughs> uh, you get the silent crawl, and, and then that, then you get brought out of that with a deep sense synth by Evangelese. Um, and then you get to see this miniature work uh, by Douglas Trumbull, uh, and Blade Runner never fails to, stack me awa- to snap me awake. Um, Douglas Trumbull, if people aren't aware, is kind of the king of this style of VFX. He has actually continued on this path and has a really um, successful company uh, with this product called Magi where he is trying to get us to watch films in 120 frames per second, which would basically eliminate all motion blur, which is kind of odd to me personally. Mm-hmm. I'm not a huge fan, but he is, uh, he's been instrumental in Star Trek and other great um, VFX things throughout the years. Uh, he's a really innovative, incredible guy. So on top of Harrison Ford, on top of Ridley Scott, um, on top of Jordan Crudewith, there was also Douglas Trumbull, who is a big part of making this movie so great. Big hitters. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the first real feel, feel, uh, scene of the film is uh, features one of our escape Nexus 6 that we learned about from The Crawl, um, Leon, who is being interviewed by the uh, Void Comp machine uh, about a tortoise, which is just like a turtle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this scene's fantastic because it kind of sets the tone in the language of the film. Uh, we get to see the cold shaft lighting and smoky atmosphere that we see again and again. And by shaft lighting, I just mean like the lighting is, is shot like beams um, very specifically through uh, narrowed corridors and shafts, you know. And the smoke kind of really uh, shows these beams or shafts of light. Uh, without it, it, it doesn't really work as well. So uh, it's pretty cool. And to accomplish this effect, everybody seems to have to smoke cigarettes constantly. Or be outside in a smoky and a smoky, cloudy haze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, ha- it's more haze and steam outside, and inside yeah. it's just cigarette smoke. But it's right. not like Bad Boys, where everything is just steamy for no fucking reason. Right, like, right, right, yeah, right. Yeah. They're, they're, people are smoking constantly. Rebecca is so smoking. So, so smoking. <laughs> like, she's just constantly smoking. But like, are, you really can't underplay how, like, just how much this knocks you on your ass for your like your first time basically like the first shot of the movie yeah you're in the Tyrell building mm-hmm. and you are seeing you see like the outside which I, I assume is just like a backdrop the no it's a miniature it's a okay so it's they have a, miniatures outside yeah the so set. the way that they do these kind of things is they build a miniature and then they b- take a camera and they pass the camera down like basically think of a if there's a there's a little toy here on the desk and my listeners you'll have to imagine like a toy or a miniature and you build like a, a rail system and you take the camera and you pass the camera towards this toy and you do this over and over again and then you cut the shots together so that it seems like the toy is moving in space. Yeah. Because wow. you yeah, because you have done this over and over and over again, the toy will slowly look like it's moving. Because you cut between these shots. Because so you cut, you're a little bit closer, and you cut to where you're a little bit closer, and you cut. So you keep doing that over and over and over, and you have to do it over and over and over to make it smooth. Um, so that's the kind of flying technique that they do. And it's the same thing they did in Star Wars and they did in Star Trek. Uh, it's this kind of flying thing. And if I'm wrong, but but I believe I've got the essentials, the basics of it down. Yeah. Uh, quick question, <clears throat> brief aside. When you were talking about the shafts of light, was this a practical thing that was done, or was this yeah. almost pure um, like art and embellishment as far as the lighting? Because it seems in some of the cases, because they do kind of stick to the shafts of light, oh, yeah, and I'm yeah, glad yeah, you yeah. I'm glad you mentioned it because it it, it persists throughout the movie right. in a lot of ways. And at some point, I was thinking, wouldn't it get difficult to <sighs> keep that going? And then, so that made me also wonder: Well, is there a reason they're doing it? Is it purely for art aesthetic, yeah. or is there a more practical underlying tone for it? I think I think that it would have to if Jordan Cronowith was here, he would have to answer the whole thing of that. But I know that a lot of times um, you light because your your lights are motivated by real world world sources. So if there's a window behind your subject, then you bring up a high backlight uh, because we see the window. We we understand that the light hitting their back is is mo- that's what it's motivated by and, and we don't have any time hard time imagining it but in blade runner it's way more about setting a mood and a scene than it is about lighting for practicality or for a natural source so 
throughout this movie, there's lights that are unexplainable, uh, especially the Tyrell Corporation. I think the most yeah. famous one is the water reflection on the wall. Yeah. There is no water in that shot. <laughs> yeah. There yeah. is no, you never see any water, but there is reflection of water on people's faces, on the walls, on all over the place, on that owl, which has always been dope to me. Um, I love the owl. And do you like my owl? Yeah. Was the, <laughs> owl, was the owl a replicate? Yes. Okay. And you can tell that because it has red eyes. Too. I don't know if you noticed that, but everyone yeah. in this film that has the red eye, yeah, uh, the uh, shining eyes, yeah, the, the, they're a replicant. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So and Deckard has them at one point. So. Yeah. Well, also, um, I know we we've talked we've touched on it a couple times, um, just about the the silent opening crawl, and I want to just really quickly address like there are multiple cuts of this movie. And seven. Yeah. There are seven cuts of this film, <laughs> and there's great debate among super fans of this movie. Which one is the best one, and yeah. which one is, and all that. But the the version that we watched and that we're talking about today is the final cut on Netflix. That's right on now. Netflix right now. It's um, a very good. I think it's my favorite. It's I, I think it's my favorite too. I mean, it has the unicorn scene, which it needs. You which, need the unicorn yeah. scene, which really lends a lot of clarity to the plot. Um, but it also doesn't have the the drive away scene, which is hard at the very end, and it doesn't have there. Okay, so the <laughs> the narration. There, yeah, there is a version of this with narration at the beginning. There's a version of this with the crawl at the beginning, and there's the all time worst version of this, which has the, the narration crawl. and the crawl and the crawl. <laughs> and it's yeah. just like, and it's like, Oof. hey, here is the fucking plot. Like, I like, I like the crawl. Yeah, the crawl is 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 the best version. I'm a big fan of the final cut, and if you like it, you, you don't like it, you can find me. You can find him. I mean, I can deal without the crawl because I mean, I'm just I'm a Blade Runner old head at this point. But like, <laughs> I get it. I, I mean, I get the crawl is helpful as fuck. Yeah, it's like here's what's going on. Yeah, like because otherwise you're talking about like Nexus Six and Replicants, and you watch this movie, and at the end of it, you're like, oh. Okay, let's watch it again. <laughs> yeah, it's way better than I wanted to do Dune this week, but like <laughs> you have to watch nah, Dune. <laughs> you have to watch Dune three times, and I think. Like two hours and 20 minutes. Yeah, long. to understand it. And you also have to watch it with a 30 minute um, art, like still picture explanation that there is <laughs> in certain versions of Dune. So Blade Runner's crawl is, is a lot more efficient. Yeah. Um, it's like, here's 500 words to get you up to speed. Yeah, this is what's going on. Replicants, they're just like humans. They're artificial. There's the Nexus series. It has four years to live. Nexus 6 have escaped. Boom, boom, shakalaka. Uh, roll, roll film. Yeah. Um, so another aspect of Blade Runner that's really interesting is when we get into our protagonist, uh, after Leon has said, you want to know about my mother? And then shoots that motherfucker. Yeah. Because he was just mad about the whole tortoise thing. He felt stupid. That was also a great fucking scene. It is a great yeah, scene. Yeah. And you get to see the guns in Blade Runner are wild. Because yeah. you're, like, you're like, damn, okay, well, that bullet just blew a, blew him and the chair through the wall. And then, yeah. <laughs> you know, so the guns in Blade Runner ain't no joke. Uh-uh. And you know that because they have four barrels on that little pistol. And the Voight-Kampf machine is an amazing. You mean the machine? Yeah, it's a woo. And it gives you a, 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 it gives you reason to get just like super existential and super wild with your dialogue, like out the gate. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, Which, which which is essential for this movie. That that type of like that type of dialogue, that type of kind of like existential questioning, is imperative to the success of Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. And I, I fucking live for it, even though it does sometimes upset me. Yeah. So our, our protagonist is Deckard, um, and he is a film noir-style detective who is just trying to get four dumplings, not two, four, <laughs> with noodles, um, but is pulled away by Edward James Olmos to see Brian Take. <laughs> I can't remember <laughs> what he said. I don't know if it's Take, but he's just like... Brian does something, and then he say you braid run. Well, he say are you a braid run, <laughs> and he say you raise a raise a raise a raise a raise a raise. But it is one of the best lines. In it is one of the best lines in the movie. Um, but anyway, so Deckard is is brought back, and we we find out that Deckard is a retired Blade Runner, aka a detective who uh, kills replicants who have gotten loose because replicant replicants hunter. are not allowed, on, as we learned from the crawl. On Homeworld, on Earth, um, I refer you to the crawl. I refer you to the crawl. I refer you to the crawl <laughs> uh, because they, you know, they're dangerous yeah. and uh, they're wild. Um, so Bre- Bryant tells uh, Deckard about like he's like he, he's like, I need the old magic. They hold, they hold, I need the old Deckard Blade Runner back. 
You know, and and he's and I love the line where he's like, he's like, oh, he can still breathe if you hook him up to a machine. Oh, yeah, I need to. He's almost got like Jimmy Stewart. He does. Voice. He does. Oh, I need you to go and catch me a couple of the replicants there, Dacker. I ain't gonna be an embarrassment. <laughs> you know how that's, Dacker. You're not caught. But all my book. Like, well, here's the thing: is if you don't do it, if I can get you. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the the whole if you're not cop, you're little people. For for people on Reddit who have questioned that line, it just refers to the fact that he's saying, uh, if you don't do what I tell you to do, then I'm gonna ruin your life. I'm gonna make sure it real hard for you. Yeah, yeah I'm gonna fuck your life up because yeah. you don't have any rights. You know, if you're not a cop, you're little people. Um, so we then learn about Roy, Roy, Sora, uh, Pris, and Leon, the escape next to six uh, replicants, and through a beautiful scene where it's just a projector, so much cigarette smoke, <laughs> um, and blue cathodes that are supposed to illuminate their face. But every time they cut to those blue cathodes, they're very small, and you're like, that could never illuminate their faces. But it's a beautiful, just like super hard, cold rim lighting and, and soft blue light and just tons of smoke. Um and that's where we get the explanation. And he sends Deckard off to the Tyrell Corporation to put the machine on Rachel. I want you to put the machine on her. He's like, what if the machine doesn't work? And then he just makes like a... Well, <laughs> Deckard, I'm sure I couldn't tell you what I had in mind. <laughs> Thunderclap. Yeah, so we get... And and that's the end of Act 1. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah, For yeah, real, yeah, like, yeah. that's that's the yeah. end. Like, when... Brisk. I'm yeah. sorry, I'm, and I'm sorry that it's not it's not coming together... In my mind right now, when this happens, but is this this is before or this is after when Roy and Leon go to visit? This is before. This is before. This is before. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're talking about when they go to visit um, the eye scientist, Hannibal Chu, played by James Hong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also a great. I only do eyes. <laughs> I do your eyes. You nexus. <laughs> razor, 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 razor. Just a complete imitation of us. So, yeah. All right, so he goes to see Rachel, and we see, um, and this is the this scene actually outdoes the opening scene uh, in terms of lighting design and mood setting. It's golden fucking pyramids. I mean, it's dazzling. Then you get inside, and it's monumental. There are reflections of water that aren't in the scene, uh, hard shadows that come in the form of beams that couldn't possibly exist, uh, an indie filter which is like sunglasses for a camera. That's what I'm calling it. Gets put over the um, outside window. Yeah, it almost and looks then, like sepia. Yeah, and then beams of blue light rake across the smoking room. It's just fucking incredible. And this this movie taught me that as I move closer, as I learn more about production and, and cinematography, that I don't need to have an excuse to take something in my mind and just make it. Yeah, because there is nothing in this room that lets any of this light make any sense. Like yeah. I talked about early, this is just like, "Hey, man, make something beautiful, futuristic, and haunting." And he's like, "Yeah, this shit's wild." Yeah, and but yeah, but I mean, the thing is, is like everything you said, you know, none of it makes sense, but at the same time, it works. Well, when you have an individual, like a whole, like a wholly individual universe that you're setting your story in, yeah, it gives you carte blanche to just do whatever you want, and you also have the out of it's like especially in this scene that takes place at the Tyrell Corporation because everything else is very like rainy gritty like yeah. like futuristic film noir but in in the scenes in the Tyrell Corp in particular like the first scene this scene and then the scene where uh, Roy confronts Tyrell later on mm -hmm. you have the out of having Tyrell being number one a genius number two a quadrillionaire and number three weird as fuck and a so, bastard and yeah and a super bastard but like also he's his his whole a huge part of his character that is evidenced by the set is that he is like he's he's like the ultimate bourgeois yeah. fuck mm -hmm. like he's super gaudy and super lavish yeah. and everything so you 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 get some license to to do things that may not necessarily Makes sense within the the scene, yeah. But that you that really allow you to do some unique stuff with the set. And I I posit um, it is better to go big than go small here. Yeah, like you need to make your shots distinctive, and you need to make your world futuristic, and set it apart. And you need to do it well. Yeah, well, I was you do say need to do it well, but you yeah. do need to have the courage to go hard. Well, that seems to be a theme with a lot of aspects of uh, Blade Runner. Is just like this is super ambitious. It's incredibly go, ambitious. Go big. It's yeah. like nothing will be small here. 
Like yeah. everything will be big, larger than life. That's how we're gonna do it. Go boys. And I mean, I don't know. Like I, I criticize Ridley Scott a lot. For sure. Somet- I mean, sometimes, justifiably. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes I'm unfair. Lots of times you're fair. But <laughs> holy shit, Ridley. Oh, this like, is a lot Jordan, though. I, the, yeah. the, all that I'm talking about is Jordan Cronenworth, and this is him lighting the scene. And I'm sure Ridley was right there with him, you know, doing it. Just like, damn, you're good. Kind of like when uh, I watch Tarver work. I'll just be kind of behind him. <laughs> I'm like, he'll be like, what do you think? I'm like, looks good. Like, <laughs> yeah. looks, looks damn good. Well, I am a f- very far cry from this. but Well, let's get into credit yeah. for Ridley where credit for Ridley yeah. is due. Let's talk about that plot, baby. Now, the plot is is really moving succinctly and fantastically. Uh, at this point. Um, so Deckard confirms, Deckard puts the, the machine, the void comp machine on Rachel, and we confirm that she is a replicant who Tyrell tells us, you know, brags about her having implanted memories and tells him that she's disposable, merely a prototype. But like, like oh, that's just my niece, dog. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel's gorgeous. And the actress is uh, doing a really good job. Um, I, I forgot her name off the top of my head, but look. But that, that was also because they were, you know, with the implanted memories and stuff, you know, a lot of this, you know, at the time they probably wouldn't have known it was setting up Blade Runner 2049 with the protagonist of that Sean movie. Sean Young. Sean Young, yeah, that's her name. Yeah. It actually turned out to be kind of crazy later because she wanted to be Catwoman so bad that she, like, appeared on late night shows with cat oh, ears. Oh, yeah, cat I remember reading about that. Yeah. yeah, it was very strange. Um, yeah. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so she's, she gives this – We it fills me with great sadness – when you when you realize that she has implanted memories, that to make her more like a human and to try to avoid the mistakes of past replicants, they've implanted someone else's memories in her. Yeah. So it, it's a really heart-wrenching scene, and it, it, it starts us down the path right here is where you really start realizing that replicants aren't necessarily the bad guys um, in this film and that humans are cruel as fuck. More human than human. Yeah. Um, which is the Terrell motto. Um, so Deckard leaves. Rachel visits him in his apartment, and this is where Deckard confirms to her that he that she is a replicant, and he does so in a way by saying memories that she'd never told anyone. Um, and this this is the part that really hurts me every time I watch it, because you see on her face, and this is where Ridley really earns his stripes, by staging this scene so well and and knowing to hold on her face as Deckard is talking and not cut between too much, he really lets each actor get their amount of screen time and, and he and he holds on it. And he work and this their responses are beautiful. Like the, the response on her face as he's telling the story about the spider um when she was young and you 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 feel it. You feel it, and it, that's how you know it's a strong performance. Yeah, it's some of the best acting in the movie, by far, in my opinion. Like they, just the way that she is trying to stoically receive. Like there's, this is the. Me and Aaron have been talking recently a lot about how um, there are certain people who will get cast in movies to try and play like the the seemingly meek character who has all this like unbridled rage or like you know smarts or whatever like simmering underneath, but these. Like, Sean Young and Harrison Ford in this scene are two motherfuckers who know how to have some shit simmering underneath. Like, yeah, you yeah. really see, they, they do a, a whole lot of eye work. Yes. And it's so clear that both of them, like, Harrison Ford is telling her this because he feels she deserves to know it. And he's, but he, and it, you can tell it's, re- it's like gutting him to tell her all these things and to like deal with a lot of the shit that he's known for a long time. And she's also trying to receive it in like, you know, a, a stoic and unaffected way. But like, and she, you can tell she's done some figuring out on her own, but like, it's really one of the most important scenes in the development of their relationship to me. And it's a really strong decision on the part of the director to never show Harrison Ford reading the scripts about her life. Like, yeah. we don't ever get... To, we don't have to see that. He just says it, and we know that he knows it. And as, as it unfolds by her reaction, we know that it is true. Yeah. So that we just know that he has access to this information. And I'm not my water over. Yeah. So I really love that, because it's a lot of films, a lot of bad films, bad sci-fi films would have shown, had a shot of him, like, scrolling through his little 
computer going and into seeing, yeah like a weird computer and pulling yeah. all these like files yeah, and so, cutting yeah. away from the important thing, which is which is the narrative. It's not important how it's 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 set up well enough that we it's like oh yeah he just has access to that information yeah and we don't it's because it's set up right yeah. then I don't have any questions about it. We don't need to see him. In a scene, fifteen minutes prior, like going, go hacking into the Tyrell mainframe, oh, oh, no. and being like, "Oh my god!" Like <laughs> he just, these monsters. Yeah. It's like he just knows because he's a good detective. Yeah, yeah. he is a good detective. Um, so while the while Deckard is doing this, the Nexus Six, um, they are aware of him and they are moving to execute their own plan. Um, first off, they kill poor old Hannibal Chu, played by James James Hong, yeah. who is a very uh, prolific character actor. Yes. And played uh, Lo Pan in Once Big, Trou- a- Big oh, Trouble in Little I was China. I going to say Once Upon a Time in Little China. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, a, ter- a terrible film that, I, that, so I, much that I have done a watch along with. Um, and this is, you know, where he tells them that I only do eyes. I only do eyes. I do this was a great eyes. scene too. It this was is a great. Scene. It was really scary uh, when I believe it was Leon like rips his coat mm-hmm. off of him. And, yeah, because because it's it, it's this real funny thing they play with, which is the strength of the replicants, and it's like okay, Leon could have just snapped your neck. Uh, he could have just like punched you in the back really hard and killed yeah. you instantly. The myriad of ways he could have killed you, but it was like you know what? Wouldn't it be fun if we just watched him freeze to death in his own lab? Yeah, yeah, because it's terrifying. Like it's it ter- is. And J- and uh, and uh, Hannibal Chu is if we haven't mentioned this is in a, is an eye geneticist in an eye creation lab, and it is well below sub-zero yeah, in there. And freezing. It is freezing. He's wearing a coat that has a pumping hot air into his into his coat, and uh, Roy Batty and Leon are both, you know, completely fine. Roy yeah. actually, or Leon actually puts his hand in, like, some, like, liquid nitrogen kind of shit yeah. Yeah. and then pulls out an eyeball. And while Roy is talking to Hannibal Chu, Leon keeps putting these eyeballs on, on his, his shoulder. shoulder. Yeah. And, again, this is... Ridley really doing a good job. Like this is a really good decision. It's like just letting the actors do this and either directing them to do it or you know, but being involved in the scene and 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 really making it come alive because it is this could really have been a boilerplate bullshit scene. Yeah, you know, it really could have been where he's like, all right, well, you're just gonna ask this guy for information because this is the way film noirs work, right? The bat, he's like. You you're just gonna ask this guy for information, and then you know he's gonna tell you about J.F. Sebastian. <laughs> he's George Lucas. Yeah, he's gonna tell you about J.F. Sebastian <laughs> faster, more intensely, and you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna go over to see him. And but instead, it, the the scene has a lot of character and a lot of life to it. Um, and that's two, really awesome. Two things that I want to mention about this scene is that he does um, really Scott does something really interesting here. In, in, in a narrative sense, is that he does it a couple of times in the movie. When you mention uh, Leon dipping his hand to get the the eye out, he does that again later on as kind of an intim- like a, a way to intimidate, but also it's just used as a, a, a tactic to demonstrate the strength of the replicants. Yeah. And because Pris does it too in JF Sebastian's house later on, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. when she dips her hand into the boiling water to to grab an egg, and yeah. he, um, she, they, they could choose to do. Like have these big actiony moments, and there's some good action in the movie. I mean, there's it's not like there's no, particularly when we get into the third act. But it's kind of like it's almost like a like a, a horror monster tease, yeah, yeah, yeah. where you show like a, you get a, you get a taste of how terrifying or how strong your adversary really is, but you never see their full strength until it's time for the climax of the movie. Yeah, and they do a really good job of that here, and it's a really good intimidation tactic tactic that Leon uses on. Um, Hannibal Chu, yeah, um, and we also see here like they they and rather than have like Leon rip Chu's head off or have yeah. Roy like lift him up, you know, right, one handed right. by and the shake neck, him down, like or shake so, the chains, yeah, out of his or pockets, some other shit yeah. that like you would really have to either throw a lot of money into it or like show your hand at what your budget is by having some kind of unimpressive stunt work go on. Right, yeah. Like, instead, you're just terrified because you don't know the limits of the power of your adversary. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you don't know what they're capable of. Yeah. Yeah. That is a, that's a good point. Um, anyway, but he tells them, he's he tells them about uh, 
J.F. Sebastian. J.F. Sebastian. I'm J.F. Sebastian. Hey, I'm Liam's J. favorite Sebastian. character in this I, movie. I, I, I my make, toys are my friends. I make my friends. <laughs> I fuck them, too. They're my friends. They live horrible lives. Yeah. One of them has a he's, sex toy in his mouth permanently. J.F. Sebastian was straight fucking those dolls. Yeah, for real. He's a, he's a friendly little genetic engineer <laughs> who suffers from Methuselah syndrome, a disease that causes syndrome. his cells to age prematurely, which is why he's not on the off-world colonies. I'm very lonely. He's very intelligent. Um, the second most intelligent person in the movie. If you really think about, it. if you really think about, it. well, third because Roy, yeah, um, but it's Terrell, Roy, and then J.F. Sebastian. He's also crippled by his loneliness. I made this one with a long nose so I could sit on it. Whoa, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you know, you know, you know, you know. You know, there's something on. It's weird too. Like, yeah, it's weird. But anyway, <laughs> they're horrifying. They're they're hor- The toys, yeah. the toys in J.F. Sebastian's apartment are horrifying. Oh my god! Oh my god! Jake and DJ. One of them has a teddy bear head. And I'm like, this is not a robot. This is a living creature, and you made its head a teddy bear head. Well, he doesn't need all, brains. I he just needs that booty. <laughs> just th- for me. He's thick. J.F. Sebastian. He's thick, boy. <laughs> Damn. Damn, boy. He's, He's thick, thick, boy. Thick just for me. J.F. Sebastian. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> well, maybe I don't feel bad it, uh, when he gets killed off screen later. <laughs> yeah. um, Deckard uh, tracks down uh, Sora from a scale he finds in the bathtub of the Nexus 6 apartments. Because he find they, they bust in the Nexus 6 apartments, and uh, De- then Deckard manages to take this scale and by going out in the streets and sourcing it around and talking to different folks, he figures out that it comes from a snake, and the snake maker then tells him where he sold that snake because the scale has down on its like genetic code mm-hmm. a serial number. Yeah. Which is dope. Yeah. Um and that's that's those scenes still work. Um so he goes to this club and this is the worst for me this is the worst scene in the movie. Uh it's, yeah, yeah. It's a weak it's weak. Yeah. This is the weakest scene in the movie where he has to like he talks to the club owner, the club owner buys him a drink, he starts to get a little drunk, then he booty calls Rachel and he's like, hey, you don't go down here. He's halfway through, he's just like, let me, get, let me try and get some ass real quick. Yeah, let me get some ass <laughs> real quick on that RQ. Let me get that ass on that RQ. And it's really irresponsible. Well, it develops Rachel's character a little bit because she's just like, that's not a place I would go. And he's just like, well, let's go somewhere else. And she just hangs up on him. She's yeah. like, fuck you, bitch. Like, calling me. But go then investigate the goddamn crimes. <laughs> <laughs> then, he find, then he sees Sora and... Um, Tracks her, or goes in her room, and he puts on this really doofy voice. <laughs> yeah, you can it, tell Harrison Ford is having a lot of fun doing. Yeah, that. he 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 does some. He's like, "Hi, I'm here from the on the uh, behalf of the mistreatment of workers." And yeah, he does like a really goofy, whitey, nerdy voice. Well, uh, ha- have you ever had to do anything, uh, you know, dehumanizing or uh, uncomfortable yeah. at your job? <laughs> and she's just like, she's a stripper. She's just like, yeah. A fuck you mean? Yeah, what do you mean? This is ridiculous. <laughs> Um, but anyway, he shoots her down and after a really dope chase scene, and her death uh, scene is really cool because she crashes through glass. Um, it's like a series of panes of glass, and he, he guns her down. And as you see her die, you realize again that she doesn't beep or spark. <laughs> blood meat, meat more. <laughs> blood comes out of her. She dies like a human dies. Um so it's pretty wild. And Leon happens to be there the whole time. And then Leon sees this and his, like, dumb little expression that he makes. What? What's the, what's? The, I know you'll be able to help me out with this, Blake. What's the, the movie with, like, Tay Diggs and I think, like, maybe Christian Bale where it's, like, set in the future and they, all they do in the movie is break glass? Equilibrium? Equilibrium. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. this chase is like you can tell fucking whoever directed Equilibrium. Was it it wasn't John Woo. It was like somebody, no, somebody I who did. it's like a wannabe John yeah. Woo, but they just they saw this chase scene and they were like, I want to make that, but like the whole movie. The whole movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like the whole movie is just motherfuckers <laughs> smashing through glass plates. A lot of shit that got taken from Blade Runner. Yeah. Um anyway, it sends Leon over the edge and he goes up to Deckard and starts to whoop his ass. Yeah. Straight beat. Which which was my first hint in this movie that because, you know, I don't do a lot of reading. What do I look like? Someone that reads? Mm. But uh one of my first hints that Deckard was a replicant was the fact that he toted this ass whooping. He did. Yeah. yeah and I I was like, he threw him into a car. Yeah, he should have been dead. And the car yeah. dented yep. and like impacted. And I was like, oh, 
you if you were human, you'd be it was dead. like you got broken ribs, you got like ribs Eternal going into your lungs. Yeah. So I was like, your legs don't work. I was like, that's it. She had blood coming out of your nose, and that's all she wrote. Yeah, she, and, he's, <laughs> and he's just straight totes the fucking ass whooping like a champ. He yep. will smiss it in Men in Black. <laughs> like he just gets up, he's like, you know, he hit me, you know, it hurt. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah he hit me, it hurt. But he slaps up and he says, wake up. Time to die. Yeah. <laughs> and then Rachel blows his motherfucking brains yeah. out. Yep. <laughs> she caps him from like a pretty good distance. It's a good She's shot. Like, I'm a Nexus 6 as well. She's yeah. like, a shot only a robot can She's make. Like, Please believe. Well, not I'm a robot. I mean, not a robot. More human than human, Blake. They are genetically engineered well, beings. Yeah, okay. They're there's yeah. no there's no a mecha- shot only a replicant can well, make. Yeah. And also Sora, no metal in their bodies. Sora tries to to strangle Deckard with his tie, and she gives him a little bit of a bop in too, and like you would Thing. Yeah, she hits she, his throat. Yeah, yeah, and she's an enforcer. Like she's not like Pris. She's an like, assassin. Yeah. yeah, Pris was essentially a pleasure model replicant. Which I mean, she still is incredibly strong. But like Sora is built to kill, and she tries to kill Deckard, and he survives. Yeah. Yep. And then um, <laughs> long yawn. Then long we yawn. Rachel is nursing Deckard back to health. Um, I believe. I believe I have this in the right order. Then they have a very unprompted. Love making session is unprompted. The word it's, we're going for, un- yeah, yeah, yeah. Un- <laughs> unprompted <laughs> love making session, uh, well, un- un- unconsensual. <laughs> uh, well, well. This is uh, one of the weirdest scenes in any movie. Like it, it. Okay, so this is a great opportunity for Liam to talk about film noir and old movies because. The, the and a lot of this movie stylistically is very very interesting in that it's kind of like pre steampunk, mm-hmm. like but very like especially with a lot of the old photos that Deckard has in his apartment like that look like they were taken in the eighteen hundreds and like even with uh, with uh, Hannibal, uh, he's he's had a very futuristic device hooked up to like a fucking eighteen hundreds like coat made out of like. Raccoon pelts, like yeah, 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 yeah. it's 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 all about future infused with like very rudimentary, very rustic style. Yeah, and, and the, the computer that can see around corners and pictures. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. that one thing that, that's pretty funny. <laughs> and like Deckard still, he uses like I mean, he has like a video call with Rachel when he tries to booty call her, it, but it's essentially a payphone. Like it's 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 kind of st- it's a pioneer in that sort of style and that was compounded on and made like very lame later on but um this is a very classic like 50 or like 40s 30s 50s film noir and detective story and just kind of like old movie classic where you know that the, the guy is making advances on the his love interest and she's you know telling oh no 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 i couldn't possibly and then he just slaps her and then they kiss passionately like it's yeah yeah yeah, yeah. A, yeah it is a trope it is a trope and it's it's a it's a it's uncomfortable to watch but it is it is hard for your modern eyes i understand it is hard hard for my modern <laughs> eyes because i i am you know i'm a i'm a 2020 boy yeah um as we all are yeah, yeah. so but you know it's it, it's it, I mean, all I'm saying is, last time I slapped uh, a woman and then passionately kissed her, I was promptly escorted out of the Applebee's. <laughs> so, like, you know, does it hold up? No, but you know, it takes liberties. Yes, okay. Well, wasn't this also? Didn't this scene also get played around with in some of the cuts? Uh, I, I, I couldn't remember. I've only ever seen it this. Yeah, way. I've only ever seen this in its entirety. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. So. Anyway, they they do the thing, and then. While this is going on, a long time, uh, Roy and Pris have infiltrated J.F. Sebastian's home. They have convinced him to take Roy with him up to see Tyrell, so Roy's plan is is working. Um, Roy uh, beats Tyrell in a game of chess by whispering (laughs) Over the intercom. Whispering into J.F.'s ear. Yeah, apparently Tyrell never heard him, (laughs) even though there's a microphone in the room, but whatever. Um, When he gets up there... He has a conversation with his maker. It's a very deep. It's very symbolic. Symbolic mm-hmm. conversation where basically, you know, Roy is smart, but he can only be as smart as Tyrell because yeah. that's the limitation. Uh, if, you know, if I made someone's brain, they would only could be as smart as me. That's yeah. just kind of the way that would work. Um, and he, he realizes there is no way to extend his four-year lifespan, uh, that his quest has failed. 
So he decides. Tyrell is super harsh about it, too. He is yeah, super he is. harsh about it, but he does tell him straight up. He's like, the flame that burns twice as bright burns half as long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you've seen things that we people wouldn't, um, wouldn't couldn't ima- imagine. Couldn't imagine. So, Wonderful to tell. Yeah. <laughs> so he <laughs> he decides to take his thumbs and push out, uh, push in Terrell's eyes while very, crushing his skull. While crushing his skull, which like Game of Thrones letter, later ganked straight yeah. up. Gang ganked. Yeah. They took that shit. Gang gang of thrones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the mountain versus the viper. And then um, J.F. Sebastian is killed off screen, which I always thought was really lame of Roy because it was totally unnecessary. And he helped them. He helped them. And it was just a move motivated by petty rage. Yeah. Um, well, they're, well they're, anytime they see a human, they are like filled with rage, rage and, yeah. and, and emptiness and, and the feeling of being cheated. One of the things I liked about it too, uh, which. I, I mean, I understand kind of their relationship towards the humans, but one of the things I really like, too, is we see this weird kind of evolution in Roy's emotional responses. Mm-hmm. And this pays dividends later when we get into, like, the finale of the third act, which is my favorite in the movie. And it's Deckard's response to – excuse me, um, Roy's response to Deckard. And that has some things in it, too, because it's like, does Roy know that Deckard is a replicant? I mean, do we know that? Do we know if Roy knows that? I mean, you're 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 talking, you're saying something that people would still debate you over. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people would still debate you over whether Deckard's a replicant. But or not. but this is the heightenedness of it too. Is is Deckard changes by the end of the movie? I mean, doesn't he confirm it in twenty forty nine? He definitely confirms that. I don't think he does. Okay. No, they play with it. Yeah, okay. they never. Yeah, no, he never does. But the but the quintessential question when investigating kind of the dynamic character of Roy is whether or not Roy knows that Deckard is a replicant. If he does, then it's a little different. If he doesn't, then it's huge, because as we get into it, their encounter is way different from Roy's encounters with other humans. That's true. Yeah. So that is the end of Act Two. Yeah. Uh, and then we move to Act Three, which is like a horror movie. Yeah. And, and it's fucking fantastic. Yeah. So Roy is off the rails after realizing a everybody's dead. Death is imminent. He's you know, Leon's dead. Sora's dead. He comes home to find Pris is dead. Yeah. Um. He, he's gonna die, and he when he finds Pris dead, he starts to chase. Uh, I believe he strips down to his underwear. Yep. And starts howling at the moon and uh, starts to chase Deckard around this creepy, horribly, horribly roofed apartment. I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, I really yeah. cannot say, like, how bad of a job JF did about <laughs> keeping his home dry. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a genetic engineer. I'm not a chemical engineer. JF Sebastian only does the, the brain parts. Well, JF, you should fucking get, hire a roofer. Get a roofer. Yeah, hey, you listen, fucking... I just got killed off screen by Roy, and you would have thought that he would have been able to empathize with me out of anybody because I have Methuselah syndrome. As you can tell, I have a, I have a very, <laughs> I have a very uh, uh, relatable condition com- to to Roy. It's almost ironic. I got a, I got a problem with my glands. I my, think, my, I think I'm J.F. Sebastian, <laughs> and my glands they they age four times as fast as a normal human being. I think J. what happened. I've got Jack disease with from you. the Robin Williams featured Jack. Yeah, I think what happened with you, J.F., is that. Uh, off screen, you tried to fuck Pris, and Roy wasn't Probably, really cool. Yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't impressed or nothing. She was leading me on. It was all that part bitch. of y'all's plan to manipulate me. See, that yeah, bitch was You would have thought mm. if Roy had any compassion, he would have been able to see that I was able to hear his his story. And really, they didn't manipulate me that much. All they did was tell me the truth about him. But after they told me the truth, I agreed to help them. It's 2020, J.F. Not you even gotta... knowing that they were going to kill Tyrell. You gotta, Jan Sebastian. you got to change your way of thinking about women. All right. <laughs> so um, after the, the chase down, which is incredible, uh, as Blake, it's just filled with, with water and <laughs> shafts of light. Um, it was like the one point they burst into the room that no one's been in yeah. in 100 years, and it's just like newspapers and bird shit and a couch. Yeah. And I was like, dope. Yeah, <laughs> it's just no, dope. It's gorgeous. It's fucking like, dope. It's gold. Yeah. It's dark and horrible, and it's beautiful though. Um, then it, it culminates in the incredible improvised mini monologue where Roy, having driven Deckard over the side of the building, catches him 
right as he's yes. about to fall and lifts him up. Uh, and here, Roy Batty, played by Rutger Hauer, R.I.P. 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 Um, Rest of power. Yeah. Delivers his scene about seeing attack ships on fire off the Tannhauser Gate and sea beams glittering from the shoulder of Orion. Off the shoulder of Orion. Off the shoulder of Orion. Um, and all those moments will be lost. Like tears in the rain. And, <laughs> and completely ad-libbed, uh, one of the greatest moments on the screen um, for an it's really incredible because I don't want to besmirch the man who's passed away, but if you look at the Rudger Hauer's legacy as an actor, this was really a shining moment. Yeah, in an otherwise not incredible career as an actor, he's you know he's a solid actor, but he yeah. was never incredible. But he really he was amazing in Blade Runner. Pulled something out of himself, which is is was like transcendent of, over his normal abilities, and that was. Really incredible watch, and that um, that was also like I said, the scene um, where Roy uh, Harrison Ford is hanging on to the edge of the building. Yeah, he's slipping, and Roy. Normally, you would think Roy would be content to just sit there and watch this man fall to his death. Yeah, but something happens, and it's it's echoed twice. The first is Roy's looking down at him, smiling, and then he has this weird. He makes a weird face. Like, something in his brain hits him, and he's like, wait. And he, he looks, and then he almost kind of scoffs and, like, furrows his face and then catches him before he falls. And in, in my interpretation of what happened, Roy felt an emotion that was very foreign to him, which was almost sympathy. Empathy. 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 Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was like, and that's why I said it's important. Does Roy know if he's a replicant or not? Because if not, then he saved a human. Yeah, a human that had killed his friends was trying to kill him and was just in incredible fear for his life. And the whole scene, there's something also that I, I thought was amazing on the rewatch of this final scene. Uh, Deckard never says a word. Never. The entire, basically what we're calling the third act of the movie. Yeah. Roy or Deckard never says a word. Roy's talking. Mm-hmm. Deckard's just scared. And what is there to be? What is there to be said when you're scared? What what kind of like good one liner can you throw out there? None. When you None. see a, a genetically altered Rutger Hauer smashed through the wall of a bathroom, yeah. What the fuck do you have? There's not a whole lot. There's not like quippy one liners to get no. off. But Thank he's God. He, he's not quippy at all in this movie though. Like whenever no. it's time for business, Deckard is silent. And he is just about pursuing the person that he's trying to, to kill. But yeah, that was the most profound moment to me was when Deckard, or excuse me, when Roy feels this weird feeling, which is, I don't want Deckard to die. Life is precious. And just picks him up, throw, kind of places him on the ground. Deckard backs up out of fear. And it's like Roy knows he's dying. Well, Deckard is also the only person that Roy has come into contact with that he's in opposition to, that has not played a hand in some way in Roy's plight. True. Like, the Hannibal, Tyrell, J.F. Sebastian... Were all instruments. They were all instruments all built him. in his creation, and, and Deckard is not. So Deckard, in Roy's eyes, is sort of an innocent. I mean, he's killed his friends, and he's, he's hurt him you know, personally, but he had, he, he did not play a role in his creation. But see Roy, but this is also uh, when Roy uh, goes up with JF Sebastian and meets Tyrell. Uh, he says, I've done some bad things. I, I can't remember yeah. if he said bad, but, but basically what, what's hinted at is Roy has a moral compass, even when denying it, even when acting away from it, he has a moral compass. He knows some of the things he's done are bad. Yeah. And for him to have this kind of change right at the end is super moving. For him to save Deckard. And then only to save Deckard to sit down in front of him, pet a pigeon, yep. and deliver those lines. And and what's so funny, too, is like in the original time I watched it, when he says, now, time to die. Yeah, I thought he was about to kill uh, Harrison Ford. Yeah. I thought he was about to kill Deckard. Yeah. And instead, he just kind of knows that his time has ended. Well, he met God. He met his creator. Yeah. He finished his mission and his happily ever after is done because Pris is now dead. Yeah. So he goes through his rage and his, you know, his, 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 again, single mindedness to just kill whoever has wronged him. But then I think at the, at the end when he delivers that speech, he, that's him just coming to terms with his own mortality. Yeah. 
So it's 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 a very poignant decision that he makes to to allow Deckard to live. Yeah, yeah. And the film continues on from here, um, with Deckard being informed by Edward James Olmos's character that uh, they 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 still know about Rachel, and he says his line is like, "It's too bad you won't live." Yeah, yeah. But then again. Who does? Was that again? <laughs> oh, he yells that shit. Uh, who, 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 who does? <laughs> <laughs> Rachel and Deckard uh, beat up in the apartment, and then they run off together. And there are varying levels, depending on what version you're seeing, yeah. of hopefulness at the end. The worst is when they get to drive off. In the convertible. In the convertible away. Hey. But we, we know that they leave together. Yeah. yeah, they drive off in the convertible and then uh, OMC's How Bizarre comes on. It's like, dun, 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 How bizarre. How bizarre. <laughs> and uh, we see a little unicorn, um, origami, placed by Edward James, James Olmos's character, which confirms that the unicorn dream that Deckard had is an implant. Yep. Yeah. Or at least that's what it's meant to do. Um, anyway, that is Blade Runner. Uh, I think this film is fantastic. I think, in my opinion, it is the greatest sci-fi film ever made and stands as one of the reasons I want to make movies. Um, it is an epic that has stood the test of time, and I am definitely in the cult. Liam, how do you feel about it? Oh, I'm, I'm for sure in the cult. And, I mean, normally in any kind of, like, top, top one, two, three, whatever ranking, like, I am resistant on giving something, like, a, a number one, number two spot, but you'd have to make a very hard case for another sci-fi movie. And I have been thinking about it all day and I just, I can't think of a better one. Yeah. So I'm, I'm up in that motherfucking cult. I'm a lieutenant. I got purple robe. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the cult, but I'm on the street team. I'm delivering, <laughs> I'm delivering the dogma to the people. And, uh, this movie just, it, it, this movie is just so important. In so many ways, outside of the fact that it is m- amazing mm-hmm. in almost every aspect. Well, no, in every aspect. It, it is really, really good. But moving on that as to like what it did for sci-fi, what it did for the genre, in any direction you can run from it, you can look at so many different sci-fi movies and you can see the you can see the director or the writer of the movie watching this movie at home and finding a piece of the movie so fucking cool that he took it and ran with it. Yeah. Uh, for instance, like some of the genetic modifying thousands of movies, uh, some of the the dystopian future city, so many movies. Yeah, so many movies. Um, the the idea of a cyborg hunter. So many movies. The idea of the Tyrell Corporation and the things they're doing. So many movies. It's, it's just so many different parts of this are in everything. And that's why this movie stands alone in my mind because of how influential, how good it was, but also how influential it was and still is. I agree. Uh, that has been the Cult of Classics. I am your host, Tarver Peterson, joined as always by my co-host, Liam Kelly. Yeah. Uh, and our special guest and uh, Tap Snaps host, Blake Weatherly. Thank you for having me, boys. Thank you, Thank for, you for coming. Thank you, thank you for being on. Uh, please uh, support us by going to patreon.com slash tapsnaps, where you can also support the Cult of Classics, this show, on there. Um, uh, thank you very much, and I hope you tune in again next time.